You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are thrilled again to be able to welcome Chris Murray with us today. He's a dear friend and a terrific figure in global health and global health security. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to be back. Nice to see you, Steve and Andrew. Chris is a professor of global health at the University of Washington in Seattle and institute director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME. Chris, I want to open with a big question, which is, you know, we're almost two months since President Xi abruptly threw off the zero COVID controls with very little preparation for a whole bunch of things. The low vaccine coverage among elderly, substandard vaccines, limited availability therapies, lack of preparation of health infrastructure in the rural areas, particularly, and a weak communication strategy. We're still in a very opaque and quick-moving situation. A lot of debate around what's happening in terms of transmission, mortality levels, extreme illness and death. The Lunar New Year has begun. Is that going to trigger a major new outbreak, particularly in vulnerable rural populations? So let's start out. This is just a big picture. Two months into this, you did a lot of thinking and commenting in December around where we were. That was the last forecast. You did some speaking. Where are we right now in your view? You know, uh, given the, the challenge of data coming out of China, it's a really tough question. But I think if I had to put it all together, I would say that probably the Omicron wave, which, you know, given all the susceptibles in China, we thought about 80% were going to be susceptible in, in early December. We should expect this huge wave of Omicron. It probably started earlier than we thought because the data was being under massively underreported, even in December. And probably what's happened is we've had that first Omicron wave rip through China, peak in early December. It probably was coming down until the Lunar New Year, very much like what happened in Hong Kong. And The real question is not whether there's been a huge Omicron wave, in my mind, but have we had the million deaths or so that if you took what happened in Hong Kong in February, late January last year, and scaled it up to China nationally, that's what we would expect, more than a million deaths. And, you know, I suspect that's probably what's been going on, uh, that there was this huge wave. And it doesn't mean there's not going to be more death and and more Omicron, which also what happened in Hong Kong. But probably we've had this first giant wave sweep through China. And really, the main issue is that the death numbers are being hugely underreported, is my best guess. Like, And it's literally guessing because we just don't know. We we can't believe the numbers coming out of the government at this point. And we have this counter voice, which is Airfinity out of the UK, saying probably close to a million deaths by the current moment we're in right now and up to 36,000 deaths per day. Those numbers are astronomical by comparison with the numbers that the Chinese government's putting out. What what are your comments on that? You know, it, it is, we have no idea. It is certainly not implausible. So put it another way, if we believe that there's been 
400, 500 million infections in, in China. Some, you know, the Chinese have been arguing uh, close to 900 million, which is sort of hard to imagine. Let's say three, 400 million infections already. You take the infection fatality rate from Hong Kong and apply it, you get a lot of deaths, right? And there's no reason to think that the infection fatality rate in mainland China is going to be much lower than what we saw in Hong Kong, similar age structure, similar levels of vaccination. There would be a bunch of arguments that said it might be higher because of, of the, the healthcare system not being right. as sophisticated. So I can't imagine that the infection fatality rate is a whole lot lower than what was experienced there. So that, that leads you to the conclusion that there's been a lot of deaths. Chris, it's so good to be with you again. And this is a real puzzle, isn't it? I mean, we're sitting here in the United States trying to figure out what's going on in China. They're not being transparent. What, what does this all mean for us sitting here in the United States when we know how deadly this disease is and how it's affected us and we're not getting accurate information from China? Well, I think a lot of people don't know, for example, that China does not have complete vital statistics. Right. So you're starting from a baseline where you're you're already trying to sort of infer what's going on using sample registration schemes. They have a thing called the disease surveillance points run by China CDC, which is the main source of sort of valid cause of death data, usually with a one or a two year lag. So the idea that there is like up to the minute, you know, death data, it just doesn't exist. Now, on the other hand, deaths in hospital, China CDC has a very nice internet-based registration system. So they know the number of deaths in hospital, not at home. So you could imagine in the rural areas, particularly a lot of the elderly might be dying at home. But the deaths in hospital, they know with like a 24-hour lag. They just don't ever tell anybody about those with, with the short lag. And they're certainly not telling us the total number because, you know, if they, if they wanted to convince the world of what's going on, they would go back and tell us sort of daily deaths in hospital for the last couple of years. And then you would see what what the time trend was. But we're never going to see that. They're, they're never going to release that sort of detail. This has become a completely politicized and part of foreign policy, essentially, for China to say they've done a great job on COVID, including sort of managing the exit. And, you know, I saw, uh, you may have seen this, there was like an editorial from somebody from China in some of the African newspapers about what a great job they've been doing. Uh, so it, it's clearly part of, of foreign policy. And I think we, we just won't know. And we may never know which is the more frustrating part. So you, you've characterized China's government strategy, you know, previously you described it as a balancing act, a form of them just muddling through. Is that still how you see things? You know, I think they made the choice that they wanted to get over the Omicron wave as fast as possible. And in basically decided they were, it's better to take your medicine, i.e. all the death, quickly, because they would manage that better. So that's my interpretation, that they've intentionally tried to sort of let this run quickly, concentrate the harm and the bad press, and then tell the public, you know, thus the 900 million infection story back in early January, that it's, it's over. You know, don't worry, it's, it's largely over. Now, of course, what we've seen in Hong Kong is that it, the first wave gets a lot of people, but not everybody. And then it takes a long 
you know, uh, runway of sort of chronic, reasonably high transmission levels in different parts of the country. But I think that's my interpretation of what's going on. And part of that, Chris, is that the elderly, particularly in the rural areas, are just bearing an enormous burden in terms of those that have experienced extreme illness and death. Is that, in effect, the quid pro quo? Move fast, tough it out, grind it out, get to the other side of this, reopen China's economy, hope that there's a re restabilization and normalization, but that the the brunt of that, the big price that's going to be paid is going to be paid by the elderly and other populations that are acutely vulnerable. Absolutely, Steve. I think that's what's happening. I think they've made a calculus that says, yes, we know from the data and, and likely outcomes that there's going to be a heavy burden in the 80 plus population, uh, particularly in rural areas. And yeah, let's get it over and done with quickly, unfortunately. I think that's going on. Now, there's a counter argument that some people I've spoken to and heard from that said that there was a widespread perception in China, including at the leadership levels, that Omicron was so mild that it really wouldn't cause a lot of death. And, and somehow a, a, a collective view in some circles that said it wasn't going to be that bad. Now, of course, that's the official party line as well. And so hard to know if they were just, you know, mouthing what was uh, what people wanted to believe. So I, I don't know how much they realized the toll it was going to take or we were guessing that it has taken. Well, so, Chris, what do we do with this information or non-information that we don't have? How can the United States best address this if this is indeed is China's foreign policy and their foreign policy you know, continues to be a pattern of obfuscation in many areas, but this one could really affect us and the rest of the world. W what do we do with this information that we have and what we don't have? You know, my takeaway, Andrew, from this is that for the future, for both for COVID as well as for other infectious disease threats that may emerge, we really need a two-tiered strategy. You know, one strategy is either a treaty or further development of, of public sector reporting, strengthening of lab capacity, all the things that people are talking about to strengthen what I would call sort of public sector surveillance uh, and reporting. But we also need to just recognize that some countries are never going to fully engage and play ball with that. And so we need backup strategies that tell us about threats as they emerge that use things that are harder for governments to completely control. And I'm thinking, you know, Internet based reporting, uh, monitoring of social media, Satellite imagery, looking at uh, crowds around health facilities, crematoria, graveyards, things that are very hard for governments to control. And we now know that the technology is there, that it's a useful supplement that would say, red flag, something may be happening. We should all be paying attention to a, a threat. And I think we need that, you know, if you want to use the old analogy, the sort of belt and suspenders approach. We can't just assume that if there was a treaty and further investment, that we're going to get honest reporting from around the world. Chris, so, but there is a concern that these outbreaks in China will generate, 
you know, dangerous new subvariants. Are these claims overblown or is this really something we should be concerned with? You know, personally, of course, it's, it's a statistics game, right? Whenever you have hundreds of millions of infections, that's certainly possible. Is it likely? In my mind, not so likely. Why? Because the place where we expect the really bad variant to emerge is an environment where there's enough immunity already that the mutation that has immune escape succeeds, right? Right now, Omicron, particularly the current variants that are subvariants that are out there, is so incredibly infectious that in, an, in a population that doesn't have a lot of immunity, namely China, it seems unlikely, even if that mutation emerges, it's going to be in the environment where it's going to spread uh, easily. Because Omicron just is going to, and, and we, show, we see this in our models. We play around with the models. To beat Omicron, you have to have quite a lot of immune escape, uh, more than previous variants had against prior variants. And so I'm less worried about the sort of killer variant coming out of China. Now, if it does, I won't be shocked because it's just a numbers game, but it does seem like it's a less likely place than emerging in a population with pretty high levels of immunity, either from vaccination or from, you know, a recent wave of, of Omicron. Chris, you know, we talked in our last podcast in this series looking at the reopening. Scott Kennedy from CSIS, we talked with him about how these developments lead to the real possibility of President Xi's standing with Chinese public being hurt significantly in various ways. I wanted to shift the conversation to what it what this pattern means externally. The United States has been pushing for greater disclosure and WHO has been pushing for greater disclosure around genomic sequencing and clinical data disaggregated by geographies and and different points in time and the like. WHO has been pretty persistent uh, in this and has won a little bit of progress from the Chinese. There's still quite a bit more work to be done. My question is, are we moving in a direction where we could anticipate having a different kind of conversation, a more cooperative conversation between China and the rest of the world about preparing for future pandemics? Or are we going to be in a sort of stark standoff as we've been in the last couple of years? I think we're going to get a little bit of both. I think the Chinese still believe uh, in the public health community that they have managed COVID better than everybody else and are very, will be happy to, to share their, what they perceive as their experiences on that, particularly the ability when they were doing it to do mass testing and take something that we thought was not going to be possible, which was to contain Omicron, you know, think back to the Olympics last year, and still control it, this extraordinarily transmissible variant. And they were able to use the mass testing strategy to, to contain it at, at huge cost, huge social economic cost. So I think we'll hear that from for years to come about, about that. Will we get transparency from the Chinese, like a retroactive release of data? No. I don't believe that. I, I believe that you must interpret what's going on against a general backdrop that's been there since Xi Jinping took over of year by year decreasing willingness to share data and decreasing transparency. There, there was a period five years ago where there was a lot of data coming out of China to the public, to research groups around the world. 
And then it's just being less and less likely as time goes by. And that's, you know, just the people who own data are worried about sharing data. So, Chris, shifting a little bit to our congressional oversight of NIH, there's some investigations going on to EcoHealth about grants that went, NIH grants that went to EcoHealth Alliance. How would, might those affect the environment of dialogue between China and the U.S.? You know, I think if there was, which there won't be, but if there was ever hard evidence, you know, in, in one direction saying somehow that the, the lab leak hypothesis was true, that would be devastating, right? Both for U.S.-China relations as well as, I think, for China global relations. I don't think we'll ever see that evidence because, you know, how would we reconstruct what happened? It really will be uh, one of those things that nobody's ever going to have a great answer to. So you're going to be left with, you know, opposing views that say it wasn't a lab leak, you know, the evidence of the transmission around the marketplace, the camp that says very, very unlikely, and then there's the camp that says, well, we don't believe in coincidence, you have this lab doing all this research, and it's the very same place where, where it jumps into human populations. It'll, it'll stay ambiguous and undetermined, and uh, in the U.S. domestically, it'll be a politicized view of which hypothesis you, you, you buy. So I sort of think it'll be, we won't get resolution. It'll create a lot of noise, but we're not going to get any clarity is my suspicion on that one. Chris, we've seen a lot of statements coming out of various places like in Davos from the Chinese and elsewhere that they're really, really eager to reconnect with the global bioeconomy. Uh, they are very eager to reopen, permit their own populations to travel have welcomed people coming in. They've had a hard time in this period in generating good vaccines, good therapies. They've stumbled pretty badly in this period, while the West, in terms of its bioeconomy, has done reasonably well in many respects. They seem to be highly motivated to get back and get and re-strengthen, re-fortify their position within the bioeconomy. Might that skew the incentives to being a little bit more forthcoming and cooperative in preparing for future outbreaks? I guess I remain a bit skeptical about that, Steve, because I think fundamentally anything that might be misinterpreted or, or used to diminish China's prestige in the public health arena or the health arena is going to not be very welcome. Health has now been elevated to the, you know, the head of government, head of state level uh, through COVID. So I, I find that hard to, buy. of course, they want the economy growing back at a high rate and they want to exert their, you know, uh, leadership, political influence. But I don't think that will drive transparency because the cost to the regime, for example, let's say it came out that they intentionally let COVID Omicron wave ripped through the population, knowing that there would be a high toll in the elderly. That's just a, something that they can never really afford to see documented. I just think we're going to be in the dark for a long time about what's happened in China. Chris, this is all incredibly helpful. And, you know, it's really hard to understand without understanding that this is a Chinese foreign policy issue, why they would be keeping this data from everybody and why we'd be so in the dark. But if there's anything that gives you optimism about the future of this situation with China, could you share it with us? 
You know, I think China is a, you know, it's an obvious statement. It's a very big country. There are a lot of people in the, as you said, the bioeconomy. Uh, there's a lot of extremely capable, hardworking, bright people in that. And so, um, you know, it may well be that from within China, we'll see, you know, voices that want to share with the world what they saw happening. So eventually, you know, things may turn around and we may eventually learn what's gone on. I just think that we won't in, in the sort of short run. So in the long run, some hope there that uh, things will emerge. The other thing that gives me some hope is they've seen, as they did with SARS-1, by the way, that, which triggered the uh, huge stimulus to the public health sector, the creation of their overnight Internet surveillance system, just very good in terms of the sort of infrastructure that exists. I expect that the the social, economic, political consequences of COVID will trigger a lot more domestic attention investment in their ability to track what's going on. Doesn't mean they'll tell the rest of the world about it, but it will strengthen China's ability perhaps to see things very, very early on. I think we're in for a harder spell for at least for a few years before we, we emerge out of this um, highly politicized environment. Chris, thanks so much. It's great to have you back with us. Um, this has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Andrew. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, gentlemen. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Marla Hiller. In the first quarter of 2023, we will be transitioning Coronavirus Crisis Update into a new format and title that will encompass and carry forward that work on the COVID-19 pandemic, along with some other related work pertaining to HIV AIDS and other areas of priority focus. Stay tuned for that. That work will be carried forward under the banner of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. Thank you.